Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. Hey, come on now, take it easy. On this episode, March might just be about over, but there's still plenty of time for us to talk about the importance of March in brewing and explore the style that's wrapped itself up in the meaning of March with the German style of Märzen and its modern update. So let's sit back and get ready to march forth to some beer. Oh, that was really bad. I tried. But before we do that, how about a message from our sponsors? Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brew's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. globalized world as it exists today you know it it allows us to have anything that we want whenever we want it wow really man well just about i mean and maybe definitely not at the quality that we'd really like to have it so whether it's like long stored apples have been kept in special vaults throughout the year or the kind of those sad mealy tomatoes that get shipped in from chile during the winter um at least from a north american perspective the beer tabs however they flow year-round but they didn't always, at least not so freely. So let's dig a little bit into some beer history. Uh, Denny, you get you like your beer year-round, don't you? Uh, yeah, I do. What, what I'd really like, though, is a flying car if I could have anything I wanted. Point taken. We'll, we'll get you there. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, man. Um, you know, these days we can pretty much have loggers in the hot days of summer, which is what we really want a lot of the time. So, yeah, things have changed. So, speaking historically, the reason why we're talking about March beer here, before the advent of artificial refrigeration, which really only kind of comes up in like the 1850s, brewers were really at the mercy of seasons. Just like it's popular these days for chefs to talk about localism and eating seasonally, get us away from the sort of global supply chain that we're on. Beer used to be very seasonal as well. Think about the average home brewer. And unless you're somebody who's really fancy and or really dedicated, you probably have a brewing season, that period of time per year where you can go and brew and be comfortable, you know, whether you're in, you know, say St. Paul and it's not snowing, although I know a lot of you guys up there do <laughs> snow in the middle of winter, or here in LA where when the summertime hits and it's 110 degrees, I may be a dedicated brewer. I'm not quite that dedicated though. So for most of us, it's just the impractical nature of sweating out half your body weight, you know, or a roaring jet flame to make a beer that keeps us from brewing in the summer. But Back in the days before we really understood germ theory, for instance, the living nature of yeast and bacterial contaminants, the coming of summer spelled disaster for many brewers. The wort took longer to cool. Remember, during this period, there's no forced cooling. Brewers are depending upon big, wide, shallow cool ship pans to cool the wort down. Get a couple of inches of wort into a pan, let the nighttime temperatures drop that down, and then pull it into your fermenter and allow it to ferment. So during the summer, they're going to be less effective because the overnight temperatures aren't down as low. And we hadn't quite invented the copper chiller yet. And ooh, if you want to see something kind of really beautiful, go look online for, uh, use the term Baudelaire cooler. There are these really cool copper chillers that were designed in the eight, mid-1800s. And they effectively are waterfall chillers. You run the wort down a cascade of copper pipes to chill it off. They're really kind of cool. They're really wholly impractical these days, but I still kind of want one because they're kind of pretty. Not only did the wort take longer to cool, but once you did get the wort cool, your fermentations started much faster, but they tended to go squirrely. So unless the beer was meant to be drunk fresh, summertime brewing was a bit of a crapshoot. What do you think about summertime brewing? Um, You know, I get up early and get it done before it gets hot, Uh, you know, which I guess they could have done also. I, I think that it's interesting that you mentioned that beer was meant to be drunk fresh. I kind of thought that all beer back then was pretty much meant to be drunk fresh and that, uh, that the aging was just kind of a, a thing that happened, not a thing that was planned. Well, not all beer was meant to be drunk fresh. You know, brewers used to, particularly like with London Porter, for instance, you know, that was a thing. It was how long did it take to age it? And they had a lot of, unscrupulous methods to try and speed up the aging, like adding acids to the wort to get that acid touch. So a little bit of both. Some beer was meant to be drunk fresh, but some beer was also meant to be stored. So mild versus stock ale or stale ale. To me, it's just that you had these beers that were meant to take a little bit more time to get going. And particularly during the summer, you weren't going to have the ability to get them clear and everything else before the sourness really took hold. Because again, yeast was magic. Yeah, right. And I guess that's kind of what I was getting at. You know, they didn't age them because it was going to make a better beer. They aged them just because they wanted to have beer available six months later and they couldn't brew when it was hot. So the only way to have beer when it was hot was to brew it when it wasn't. To your point about, hey, I get started early. Yeah. Well, back during this period of time, brewing processes involved 
multiple hour boils, multiple mashes. So even starting early, you were still running into the hot part of the day because a brew day would take you 12, 18 hours. They, they could have just used the air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> Think to your own experiences doing things in the summertime. If you don't have a cool place to ferment, how much success have you had? How many more weird beers have you had? How many things have kind of just gone a little bit pear-shaped whenever the mercury rises? I know I've had a few, even with my saisons, which love the heat. These days, we know that the problem lies in brewing with less than great sanitation, mixed cultures, because again, not a pure culture thing going on here, and that at higher temperatures, you know, at higher temperatures cause weird things to happen with yeast. And no, we're not insulting our predecessors. There's only so much you can do with uh, trying to sanitize wood and before you have microscopes and before you understand germ theory. Not even actually today are most microbiologically savvy brewers can really even keep a wood fermenter going in a clean fermentation forever. We can all, ex all understand and see this experience where brewers who get these bourbon barrels, they're like, yes, I'm going to do like these two clean beers out of it and I expect it's going to go sour and then I have a sour barrel. Let's break this down. Slurries or magic sticks or the magic foam, you know, that you know that you would use back in the day to naturally get the beer to ferment. You know, there would have been a combination of yeast, brett, uh, bacteria like Pediococcus. In a perfect world, your Saccharomyces can outgrow those other critters. And then the change in the alcohol level induced by the Saccharomyces fermentation and the pH drop prove a much harder ground for the lactos, the pedios, the brets, and whatnot to gain a foothold and a chance to drop their, well, very palate-impacting uh, side chemicals into the beer. So the longer that you stay up high during that cooling phase, so again, when the cool ships are, are not as effective because the nighttime temperatures aren't as low, and as long as you have an inadequately sanitized fermenter and this mixed culture pitch going on, the more time that you give for airborne things to come in and settle into the wort via the cool ship and for things in the wood itself to actually multiply and to begin to impact the soup that we call wort. Again, they can take advantage of that warmer temperature. So if you're staying up hotter longer or what food scientists call in the danger zone, your yeast aren't going to be able to act, act as well and be able to make an inhospitable environment for those things. This is the reason why in our day and age, when we have access to refrigeration, Outside of when we're trying to make, say, a Lambic-style ale, or we're making quick kettle sours, or we're doing something with a cool ship, we talk about getting our worts down as low as we can, as fast as we can, and hitting them with oxygen and vital yeast starters. And thankfully, we have refrigeration to help us, so go glycol, fridges, freezers, etc. <laughs> but more on that in the next episode. What the heck does this have to do with March? Okay, let's take a look at Munich, because we're going to be spending pretty much all of our episode in Munich. Look at the Munich average temperatures. I pulled these out for last year, 2018. In February, the average temperature in Munich was 34 degrees Fahrenheit or just a little over one degree Celsius. In March, it was 37 degrees Fahrenheit, so just a little bit warmer, 2.8 degrees Celsius. In April, the Munich average temperature in 2018 was 59 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius, a big leap in terms of temperature. So you start to get the reason why people kind of look at March as an interesting end point. So before the days of refrigeration, March kind of generally marked a time when you wanted to kind of consider secession of brewing activities. 
or at least understand that you're going to have a greater risk in terms of your brewing. You can take a look at, say, Cantillon. Cantillon still is doing this sort of thing where they typically only brew between September and April. And you'll remember on an old episode of the main show, we actually talked about how Cantillon is looking at possible impacts of climate change, shortening up the brewing window. They've already dropped, I think, 40 days from the brewing window. You know, it's interesting that they brew when it's cool, but a lot of the character of their beer depends on it being warm. Right. But even then, they have to be careful about how warm it is because they lost, I think it was 6,000 liters a couple of years back because they kept the young beer up in the top of the cellar during a, a super hot Brussels summer, and it went bad. So even even though they depend upon warm temperatures for some of the characters, not too warm. Yeah, right. There is a kind of a broad historical tradition of March or Marchish beers. So kind of like the small beer de Mars, uh, which was kind of a small, quick, sour beer. There is still one very potent reminder of that March beer tradition, which means that we have to go to Munich and we have to talk about Mertzen. Denny, any other thoughts? No, I, you know, I, I think that it's time to head off and see what's going on. So let's set the stage. We all know the Bavarians are beer obsessed, beer, <laughs> beer, beer cultured. Yeah, beer, there you uh, go. Beer. There you go. That's a good way to put it. Beer cultured. Uh, after all, in 1516, we get the Reinhotzkabut, which we've talked about before. Uh, you know, the German beer purity law saying that beer could only be made with uh, water, water, malt, hops, and then later yeast, plus about 50,000 other exceptions. So that was the Reinhotzkabut. It's the one that everybody knows the Bavarians for, but it's not the only. Bavarian purity or Bavarian beer law that they ever had. The interesting one to me and that ties into this particular conversation was that in 1553, they put into place a summer brewing prohibition anytime between late April and the end of September from about 1550-ish to somewhere in 1850-ish time range. So almost 300 years, brewers in Munich were not allowed to brew during those months. So warm months, no brewing theory of legend, the story. And remember, as we always talk about on the show, beer history is stories told to beer drinkers by beer drinkers and brewers. So the amount of historical truthiness is pretty high with the emphasis on truthiness. <laughs> yeah, this times that that word uh, works perfectly. Yeah. And so the legend about uh, Meritzen and March beer is that it extends from this March prohibition idea, the idea that brewers would brew up a strong beer in March to be able to hold in caves and cellar away and pull out as needed over the course of the summer. So it's kind of a strong keeping beer, very much in the same sort of line as the British stale ales that we talked about or stock ales that we talked about before. And they would just tap into those reserves that they kept in the cellars and caves until they could finally resume brewing in October. However, the term Meritzen beer itself doesn't appear to actually really be used until later in the game. At least what we know today as Meritzen uh, seems to really rise up in about the 1850s. And again, this is another tricky part about beer history is that for a very, very, very long time, and actually somewhat even till today uh, when you're over in Europe, you you didn't order a Meritzen beer. You ordered a white, a red, or a brown, or a dark beer. And what that meant depended upon where you were, which is the reason why we have so many beer styles that have city or region names in them. And to give you an idea, when I was in Belgium and I was at Phantom one day, French uh, French woman comes in and orders an amber. 
She's not ordering a Saison or the summer Saison. She just wanted the amber beer. And so we had to figure out what she meant by the amber beer and make sure that we gave her the right beer. So that still actually kind of carries on today. A lot of the stuff that we know is, you know, really sort of Michael Jackson and everybody else trying to put structures around things. How does Meritzen then become known as Oktoberfest? So we'll do a little Oktoberfest history here real quick. In October 10th, 1810, the Crown Prince of Bavaria Ludwig marries Princess uh, Therese. Uh, and to celebrate, the royal family invited the citizens of Munich to kind of gather out to the field that's outside the city hall gates or the city gates. And that field is now actually named after uh, Princess Teresa. Uh, and they threw a shindig. Now, the shindig was not the Oktoberfest that we know today. It was mostly about horse racing. But, of course, there was drinking involved because, naturally. The following year, the party returned, and then it started to become a tradition. And eventually, they pushed the festival back into the dates where it's now hanging out, which is late September, early October. So, yes, your Oktoberfest starts in September. Let that roll around your head. Because they wanted to keep people warm. Because it turns out October's kind of cold. <laughs> yep. Traditions grew, things were added around the parties, there's carnival rides and these big tents, and eventually it became uh, about the beer, and it was continued to be held, I think it's been held all except for 24 times since 1810, usually whenever you have a kind of a small crisis like, say, a world war. The rules of the Oktoberfest said that all the beer must be brewed within the city of Munich, so there's six breweries that qualify, and that's uh, Augustiner, Hockershore, Lohenbrau, Polliner, Spaten, and Hofbrau. The association between Meritzen and Oktoberfest is that at least in the early days, you could kind of see where and make the assumption that the beer of choice would have been these darker storage beers brewed in March. And hey, they were a little stronger, which makes the party a little more festive, right? You know, nothing like alcohol for some social lubrication. Now, Meritzen, the style as we know it, evolved out of the introduction of pale malts. And then eventually, in about the 1850s or so, uh, 1870s in that range, became introduced as the official beer of Oktoberfest. So Meritzen beer becomes the Oktoberfest beer in that 1850-1870 range and stayed that way for quite a while. The whole March beer thing, of course, would have gone away with the, the secession of the Prohibition in 1850. It would also naturally change with the arrival of ice houses and refrigeration, and it would just kind of eliminate that, that need to keep brewing restricted into those non-summer months. But hey, Oktoberfest beer is still Oktoberfest beer, right? <laughs> well, not quite, man. There's a, there's kind of like a new style that popped up a few years ago. As with many things, times and tastes change. We no longer engage in bear baiting, for instance. And we also apparently no longer drink dark beers. They're, they're unsexy. They're old man beers. Uh, Grandpa drank those things. Once more, we, we must return to the dreaded rise of Pilsner. As pill-style pale lagers took over the world, the Bavarians fashioned their response, which was Hellas beer, okay, pale beer. Sort of a maltier, less straightforwardly bitter pale lager. It you know, really depends entirely on having a great base malt. It's not about showcasing hops. It is really about showcasing that malt, but at the same time, avoiding the idea of becoming a, a Maybach. So not Bachish, not Pilsnerish, somewhere kind of in the middle. It's a really great drinking style that fuels, well, really all those visits that you take to the beer garden. So as beer drinkers' taste changed, so eventually does the Oktoberfest beer. In the 70s, Polliner introduced what we now know as Fest beer here in the States because Oktoberfest beer is 
well, it's trademarked and protected. So we call it Fest Beer here. And it was effectively a souped up version of their Hellas Beer. The idea was it was more of a taste great, less filling approach to fueling the October festivities because they figured people would drink more of the pale, blonder beer. By really about the 1990s or so, all of the Munich brewers had changed with those times to pour this sort of souped up Hellas pale lager. Truthfully, here it was, I thought that it was an American thing to just kind of step on the gas. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's a worldwide uh, desire, I guess. Very interesting to me, at least, was that Festbeer, this sort of current idea of what is drunk at Oktoberfest, it didn't come here to the States uh, uh, until about a couple of years ago. And I talked with a couple of different representatives from a couple of different beer companies, so Spaten and Polliner, for instance. And I said, why do we still get the older Merzen style, the amber lager? Why, why has that come here? Why don't we see this paler Festbeer, the stuff that's actually being served in the tents in Munich? And what I was told was they've been trying to bring it in. They kept trying to introduce it to the U.S. public, but the people who are going to pursue having that German beer experience, you know, the people who care, for whatever reason, it was almost universal that they wanted that amber lager, the Märzen, and not the paler Festbier, as if though the paler Festbier was somehow a traditional and not as good. And it's only really been in the past three years that I've even started to see the the pale fest beer come in. And you'll see it called that fest beer. And you know what? It's a delightful drinker. Denny, have you ever had a, a fest beer as opposed to a Meritzen? Oh, oh, many, many times, man. Uh, I really like both variations of the style, and it just kind of depends on what mood I'm in. Sometimes I want that, that malty, toasty taste from a, a real Oktoberfest. Other times I'm into the slightly lighter body and flavor of, of the fest beer. Um, I, they're both delicious. And I have to say, it's just kind of like uh, a little bit of a cheat to go over to the other, other beer that I've talked about before, Sammy Claus. Sammy Claus, the traditional one is their, their brune and kind of big, dark and chewy. And they also have a Sammy Claus Hellas. And I think a lot of times I'm ending up liking the Hellas better than the Sammy Claus brune. Yeah, I, I agree. But you can see, I mean... Times change, people's tastes change. And so now if you were to be over in Munich, most of what you would see under the tents would be this fest beer. So let's talk some numbers. Uh, like I said, the BJCP has had uh, both of these in their guidelines now. And I'm going to throw a, a slight monkey wrench into one of the BJCP numbers because I can. But you go and you look at Meritzen. Meritzen is um, original gravity somewhere between 1050, 1060. The final gravity is somewhere between 1010 and 1014 which puts it at about an ABV of somewhere between five and six. So that's slightly stronger lager. Now, here's the one to watch for. The SRM is about eight to 17. So that puts it pretty solidly in that amber-brown category. You go and you look at the Fest beer instead, and the Fest beer, the OG is somewhere between 1054 to 1057, according to the BJCP. I suspect that the numbers are slightly fudgier, not quite that precise. Final gravity. 1010 to 1012. And now here's the thing. The BGCP says, oh, the ABV is somewhere between 5.8 to 6.5. But I've seen commercial examples that get all the way up to 6.5. So they do get a little bit stronger. Now, take a look at the Hellas ABV. And the Hellas, traditionally you'd say, is somewhere between the mid-4s and mid-5s. So you've got tacked onto this an extra percent of alcohol all the way through. SRM? Remember, we said the SRM on the Meritzen was 8 to 17. The SRM on Festbeer 
is four to seven. So even at its darkest, it's still much paler than even the palest Mertzen. Right. Big difference. Big difference there. So again, you know, you can see, and by the way, you notice I didn't say anything about the hop levels because uh, the hops are there as an amusement, not as the featured show. Um, IBUs on a, on a fest beer, for instance, are like low 20s, mid 20s. Same thing in the Mertzen world. Now, how do we make these things? We've talked enough history. We've talked enough of this, that, and the other. How do we make them? Because that's what you want to do, right? I will preface this. Do not go by your taste of what you can find on the shelves here in the U.S. Almost every example of a German beer that I've had here is terrible. And it's just really because of the transit time to get things out of the brewery, onto a container, get that container rolling across the ocean, you know, take it off the container ship, put it on a truck or a train and get it to you, where then depending upon how your distributor and how your retailer handles it, it could be sitting on warm shelves for months. So almost all the German beers that I've had here in the U.S. all seem to have this oxidized caramelly character to them that just it's it's really hard to get around. And in fact, I've actually even noticed with BJCP trained judges that it's really hard to convince them that no, no doesn't need to have that taste that's damaged that you're tasting. The beers themselves do taste differently. Denny, have you ever had a really good fresh German beer imported here into the U.S.? I, I think so. <laughs> I'd have to go to Germany and have one there to compare to actually know how fresh it was. Uh, I do know that we have a very, very good bottle shop here who uh, has great sources for beer and takes really good care of it. So I would have to say that I've probably had one about as good as you could get if you weren't in Germany. Yeah. And my classic example on this was I always thought I hated Pilsners until I had uh, Trumer Pills straight off the tap fresh in Berkeley at the Trumer at the Trumer Brewery. And at that point in time, I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. That one of my favorite Pilsners, man. Excellent beer. Yep. Just wish it wasn't in green bottles. But that's not the point of today's episode. Today's episode is all about Meritzen and Festbeer. So if you can't get very many good German examples, you know, they are kind of rarer than hen's teeth here in the U.S., what is a brewer to do? Well, you go and you brew it. So let's break down some things for both Festbeer and Meritzen. The big characteristic flavors are that malt. You're not going for anything where you're trying to go, hey, I want you know, I want a little hop character. I want this, that, the other character. It's all about the malt, which means you need to use a good malt because you're going to be using just really Munich and Pilsner in different ratios for the two. Uh, Denny, I know that you, you've had comments about malt bills for Meritsons in the past. If you look at some of the literature that's been around since the 70s and 80s, they're going to be having you put uh, crystal malts in, into your, your Meritsons, your Oktoberfests. And that's because at that particular point in time, you really couldn't get Munich malt here in the U.S., or, or especially like continental Munich malt. So what they were trying to do was make up for that by adding crystal malt to, to pills. Actually, a lot of them didn't even use pills malt. They used pale malt. So, for instance, as good a book as Designing Great Beer is, it comes from this era so when you look through there and you're seeing all these award-winning recipes using crystal malt, keep in mind that that was a, a workaround. 
Yeah, it was an adjustment based on situations. And again, we cannot stress this enough. I, we've said it before on the podcast, but malty does not mean sweet. Yes. It's a very different, a very different flavor component from malty that should taste like that crackers and bread and toast and crust. It should, taste, it should taste deep and rich. It should not be sweet. Sweet is sugar. And that's the reason why we're uh, saying don't use uh, crystal or caramel malts in these. Right. Okay, moving on to the other ingredients. Hops, all noble all the time. So go and actually splurge a little bit here on your Tetanangs, your Hollow Towers, your Spalters. Go, go and use actual good German hops. I have found Mount Hood works exceptionally well as, a, as an alternative. And a lot of times you can find those in better condition than you can find the continental hops because they're grown here. Uh, another thing that might be interesting, although I haven't tried it, is to use some of the American nobles. That's a good idea. And I would also probably throw maybe some Willamette. Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm not a huge uh, Willamette fan, so I would not have thought of that. Uh, I would stick more in the Mount Hood area. But do go find the best noblish hops that you can. And yeah, it'd be kind of interesting. Make a make an American noble fest beer. Yeah. I like this idea. Yeah, sounds, sounds interesting. I'll leave it up to you to try. I'm busy. Yeast strains. These are some interesting yeast strains. The ones I've always used have been the Munich lager strains, oddly enough. So you've got Y yeast 2308 Munich, and then you've got the White Labs 820, which is their Oktoberfest Meritzen strain. Now, we'll get a little bit into the treatment that those yeasts need, but uh, I know, Denny, that's not, it's not just uh, lager strains, right? Well, no, it's not just lager strains, but I was going to say, when I do use a lager strain, I kind of tend to avoid those because they can have a, a little bit of a tendency towards diacetyl. Uh, Y yeast 2206, uh, which I think they call Bavarian lager, was always my favorite for malty lager styles because it's real clean, real easy to work with. All right. And I usually cheat and also will tend to favor the White Labs uh, uh, German box string. That's like the 833. Is that what that is? Or 830, something like that? Uh, I think it's 830. Yeah, I don't know their numbers as well. But before I had the uh, ability to actually ferment at lager temperatures, uh, I made a lot of pseudo-fests uh, with the uh, Yeast 1007 German ale yeast, an extremely clean ale yeast, uh, especially if you can keep it down around, say, in the 60-degree the area, something like that. Uh, and this was before I had any real temperature control, so I would use that yeast. I would brew my lagers in the winter and then just set them outside for the lagering phase. And, of course, being a German beer, this does invite two questions. Uh, one, decoction. You know what, man? The first time I ever tried to do a Meritzen was the first time I ever tried to do a decoction also. Uh, and I was doing it using Great Western Munich malt. I think the grain bill might have been all Munich. And it was a disaster. That uh, that beer had about as much body as a glass of water does. The takeaway here being you don't need to do a decoction. And if you don't have a malt that is suitable for a decoction, you can actually end up really dick champing your beer. Yeah, we're not fans of decoction. We've said it before, so there you are. So no decoction for us. Also, the other note is in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of talk about low oxygen brewing or low brewing. I know people swear by it, or at least parts of it that are designed to reduce, you know, mash oxidation or, you know, wart shear or whatnot. But 
I I really just can't bring myself to the level where it's necessary to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of the same way. I take precautions to uh, minimize oxygen pickup, and beyond that, I don't worry about it. All right, so let's actually break down some beer recipes. I've got two here. I've got a Meritzen and I've got a Fest beer. So on the Meritzen side, this is one I've made for years, and I used to always do the thing of make the beer in March and uh, lager it over the summer and then go and serve it at our Oktoberfest, right? So very traditional. Five and a half gallons gets you 1055 OG, 21 IBUs, 10 SRM, so right in that middle area, a 75-minute boil, and yields a beer about five and a half percent. So, you know, pretty much shooting right down the middle. And for me, mine was always eight pounds of Weyermann Munich and then three pounds of a Pilsner malt uh, and a good Pilsner malt. So a lot of times that would be Weyermann. Mash, again, I'm a dummy and I like to keep things simple. So 153 degrees for 60 minutes. And then water profile, go kind of amber malty because you want to emphasize that malt character. On hops, I would do three quarters an ounce of Tetanang as a first wort hop. So like 4.5% alpha acid. And then... Uh, Halatar, usually the one I could always get was Herzbrucker. I'd do a third of an ounce at 40 minutes and a half an ounce at 20 minutes. If I were going to modify my recipe today, I would probably slide more hops into that first word hop and then drop that 40 minute hop addition and maybe even think about dropping that uh, that 20. Yeast, as I said, I always used to use the Y-Yeast 2308 Munich Lager or the White Labs Oktoberfest uh, Meritzen blend. And for fermentation, okay, so this is where we get into. Denny said before that the Munich strains have some notoriety. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, much like uh, everybody thinks the Saison strains want to stall, they always talk about how the Munich strains want to produce diacetyl, and they're not wrong. How I would always do this is I would cool the beer down below 50 degrees, pitch and ferment somewhere in that 48 to 50 degree range for two to three weeks. And that would assure that my primary fermentation was done as much as I could. These days, I'd probably go a little faster because I've got better yeast stall. Raise the temperature up to 60, 65 for one to two days. Remember before we talked about that all fermentations will produce diacetyl. It's just how it works. It's part of the natural cycle. What the yeast will normally do is they'll then go back and they'll convert that into less flavorful, less organic impacting sort of compounds. Now, if the yeast either settle out or they don't have enough glycogen, if they just decide not to do their job, then you would get diacetyl. Now, the diacetyl rest is the whole idea is, okay, well, let's take advantage of the fact that yeast will be more active at a warmer temperature and goose them by bringing the wort up to that temperature so that they'll make sure to actually get the diacetyl rest done. They'll, they'll do that conversion. I know Denny and I have had disagreements about the, the necessity of a, di- a diacetyl rest in, say, ales. You, you tend to do it because you want to ensure your fermentation is complete. Yeah, I don't, I don't do it to reduce diacetyl. I, I do it because I want the fermentation to be completely done. After the diacetyl rest, I'll crash the the thing back to 50 degrees, and then I'll proceed to lower the temperature one to two degrees per day, per day until I'm resting at 34 degrees. Then uh, traditionally, I would lager this for two to five months, depending upon when I brewed it and when I want it. So, you know, March to October, and then serve. And it was a wonderful beer. Like I said, there'd probably be some simplifications that we could do, but you know, for the most part, this would be very, very traditional. March beer style thing. Do you have to do a two to five month lagering? No. Yeah. Mostly I just did it out of tradition. So you could, you could in theory turn this beer around using traditional methods. So not like a modified Narzisse fermentation method using traditional lagering methods. You could easily turn this beer around in a month and a half, two months. Two, I'd say two weeks. Uh, 
I'm, oh, I'm thinking still traditional lagering methods. So I'm, I want some more time. If you're going, if you want to do that, sure. But if you want to just take advantage of uh, the modern conveniences that we have, you could easily do this beer in two weeks. Wait, with uh, are, two weeks with the full lagering? Well, not no. I mean, just two weeks of lagering. No, I'm talking about uh, a week of fermentation and a week of lagering. Okay, I'd have to try that. Uh, <laughs> well, it. and I'm I'm basing this on a guy in our club who is an amazingly good brewer who has won best of show rounds uh, more than once with pilsners and Oktoberfests that have not been lagered at all. I can believe it. But I'm, I, I, this would be just me being slightly hidebound in some of my traditionalism. Well, and and we know that that you're like that too. <laughs> yeah, oddly. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, if you want to do it the traditional method, fine. If you're in a hurry, if you just thought of this a couple weeks ago, and it's time for a Martin now, you you can do that. So now let's flip the script and talk about the modern version of stuff, right? Because that last one was more. The old school Merton, the, the amberish one, the old man beer. This one is a fest beer. Again, five and a half gallons. This one's going to be at 1058 OG, so just a few points higher. 20 IBU, so again, not a lot of hops. 4.3 SRM. So the other one was 10. This one's four. And then 75 minute boil and about 5.8% ABV. So again, slightly stronger. And for that one, again, simple malt bill. So uh, 10 pounds of Pilsner malt. And for me, I would think like, it would be really fun to do either with the Barca pills from Wireman or Pelton Malt from our fine sponsor, Mechagrade. And of course, really, if just a good base malt, a good Pilsner malt is what you need here because this is the primary character of the beer. And then one pound of Munich malt just for a little spice. Mash, again, to keep the same simple thing, 153 degrees for 60 minutes. Water profile, don't go amber malty, go pale malty because you are on a much paler side here. And then showing kind of my more modern take on how I do hopping. The hops here is a third of an ounce of Magnum for 60 minutes. I know, Magnum in me. And a half ounce of Hollow Tower of some variety, around 4% for five minutes. Use the same yeast strains and then do a very similar sort of uh, uh, fermentation profile. But again, in this particular case, it's not traditional to lager these things forever. So I'm not going to recommend that here. And yeah, you could definitely turn this around in uh, three weeks at, yeah. the, at, the, at the least. So again, look at those, look at those two recipes. They are... They're very, very similar, but all that ends up happening is we change a little bit of the water chemistry and really we're flipping the script on the, on the malt ratios where the Marison has a lot of Munich and a little bit of Pilsner. The Fest beer has a lot of Pilsner and just a little bit of Munich. And that's kind of the big difference between these two. Yeah, I agree completely. It's, it's kind of like a, uh, oh, like maybe a slightly stronger Hellas, you know, I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, souped up Hellas. Yep. Turbo Hellas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Dane, before we leave this topic of March beer, any other comments that you have? Any other thoughts that we haven't captured? You know, it, it's one of those things that uh, I don't brew often enough. Uh, my wife is a hophead, so and I certainly don't mind them. So I only get around to making a Martzen or Oktoberfest every few years, but I always enjoy it when I do. And uh, I certainly go out and seek some out from my local good beer store when it's time. My normal sort of lager thing that I do in the spring is I normally will make a Maybach. If I'm not going to make a Maybach this year, I think I might actually try that idea of doing a fest beer with the American Noble Hop pellets in it. So now the question is, which ones? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I would, I would say Laurel and Simcoe. 
And I was thinking maybe Laurel and uh, Citra or maybe Laurel and Palisade, but I definitely agree with the Laurel. Yeah, and I would I would try and keep the fruit part down, so that's why I would go with the Simcoe. All right, well, I think that's enough talk about March beer. I hope that you guys get a chance to do that. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at March brewing, admittedly with a very Bavarian focus. You have a week and a half left in this month as this episode is released to make a proper March beer, but I won't tell if you cheat and make it an April beer. How about it? Which would you rather make, the classic old-fashioned Amber Merson or the modern, sleek, and sexy Turbo Hellas known as Fest beer? Or both. Or both. Let us know. So remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, or feedback, you can drop us a line at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, and Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, brewswag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the websites, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Wings of Rescue, a great 501c3 all-volunteer organization that uh, helps dogs in shelters where they're going to be euthanized by flying them to no-kill shelters. I mean, it, is that wonderful or what? I think it's pretty dang spiffy. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.